0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the
1: internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome back, everyone, to The Bible for Normal People. Thank you guys for joining in. As we've been having these guests like Rachel Held Evans, Science Mike, Rob Bell. We've been talking about the Bible and Scripture, but one of the common themes has been their journeys of faith where there's a struggle, a time of uncertainty, of doubt. And so today, we thought it would be good for Pete and myself to have a little conversation about just that. Pete has recently recently written The Sin of Certainty, where he kind of gives us an overview and some uh, talking points about uh, their struggles with faith and uncertainty and doubt. So, Pete, maybe give us a little overview of your story with that, and we'll jump into this conversation. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com promo code normal people.
1: This episode
0: is brought to you by visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right. Well, I mean, first of all, just you mentioned Rachel and Mike And uh, Richard Rohr and a couple of other guests who are very open about their struggles with faith. And I think that's one reason why they're so popular. They're honest and authentic. And people are looking for that. I'm absolutely convinced that this journey of faith is sometimes very, very difficult for people and they don't know who to talk to. So there's a world out there. There are audiences that are looking for people to sort of articulate those struggles. And that's, you know, Probably a very good thing. Uh, the worst place sometimes to have these conversations are exactly the places where you should have them, like church or with pastors or with family. But that's difficult. Uh, Mike McCargan, his book uh, "Finding God in the Waves," talks about how difficult it was to talk about this with his wife, and he felt he was betraying. So you're losing your whole social network and all that sort of thing. It's just
1: it's difficult. So, but you you yeah. don't have any of those struggles, right? I mean, Never, you have a PhD no. from just, Harvard. No. You got it. You nailed it. I'm pretty right? perfect actually. Yes. I have
0: no struggles or anything. It's just uh, well, this is over. Let's let's. up. Well, so the, the
1: real thing. Is you just shouldn't have questions. Just yeah, what's go wrong with you, people? And you can answer all your questions.
0: Unbelievable, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, my own sort of story, briefly put, is basically being alive, you know, and and having a wife, and having children, and having a job, and. Uh, this illusion of control that I had in my life for many, many years for a host of reasons, who knows why. But having that sense of, of control, of predictability sort of goes out the window when you're dealing with other people. And especially when you have children and they get older. And, uh, you know, control is an illusion. We, we don't control our lives as much as we think we do. But if you have a faith that's really rooted in having that sense of control, like, you know what's up. You know what God's going to do because the Bible says so. And you have a job to do as a Christian, which is to be certain and to not doubt, not waver, as James says. Then, you know, when, when those moments come in your life when you actually do doubt, you don't know what to do with them. You think it's rather abnormal. And one thing that I found is that actually, no, it, it's this very normal part of the Christian life because most, every, frankly, everyone I've ever talked to about this in any depth will be very free to say, yeah, it's, this is, it's difficult to have faith sometimes for a whole host of reasons.
1: So, why is that? To say more about the nature of faith, because I was a little bit taken by you talked about uh, having this certainty. Within the faith that you're in your tradition, maybe growing up, you were had to have answers. Like that's what it was, was to have answers. How does that connect with faith? Like, what is faith?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Faith is, in my opinion, not about being certain about things. It's actually what you do when you're not certain about things. It's not about being sure because we, we often are not sure. We actually don't know much about what we think we do. We don't know God exists. We have faith. We believe God exists. And, you know, life throws a wrench in the works every now and then. And, uh, you know, the Bible itself is full of examples of people who are struggling with their faith and struggling with the sense of certainty, figuring they knew where this story was going, but it doesn't go in that direction at all. And I think people are experiencing that. But they also sometimes feel guilty about it because I think of how they've been taught, how they've been raised in the faith, that faith means having strong faith. Strong faith means you're basically certain about what you believe and you're certain that you're right. But life gets in the way and it can be anything. I mean, this is why one thing about doubt is that it's normal. It's it's so normal and it's so common and it can come from anywhere. It can come from just meeting new people who have a different way of thinking about the world, but they're actually nice. You know, neighbors that move in or people that you work with who are so different from you, but they don't share any of the values that you have. And that throws a wrench in the works because they're supposed to be bad people on the outside. And you can't demonize them.
1: Okay, so you you say, we can't know. We can't know that God exists. We can't... Is there... What do you mean by that?
0: I think we can't know the way we normally think about how we know things. Like for example, I can see, you know, a pen sitting on the desk in front of me. I know that's there. But spiritual knowing is is not of that same, let's say, objective sort of knowing. It is not knowing, <laughs> but yet trusting anyway. And I think that, that's a big concept for me too, that's come across in and people that I've read and experiences that people have had of how trusting God whether or not you know something. You know, that's, that's, that's a way forward to be thinking about the life of faith. Rather than having intellectual certitude, that comes and goes. That doesn't, that's not permanent. You have periods where you feel more certain about things than other things. But that's just it. You have periods where you feel more certain. And when you, when you don't feel certain, it doesn't mean that you're broken and you need to be fixed. That's a part, that is a normal part of the life of faith.
1: So one of the, you know, when I think about this, I often have thought of certainty as a feeling. I mean, you just said you feel certain. right? So that's an interesting take that it's hard to know when are you, being certain really is just an emotion, Right. Like we can feel it, and yeah. sometimes it comes and goes, right. uh, just like we feel confident, yes. which may be independent of the facts. Right. We just right. feel that way. Right. And so you're you're saying we can't really be certain or have uh, yeah have certainty mm-hmm. or know for a fact these things about God or things about faith.
0: Well, we can run with feel certain, well, let's just stay with that. Sometimes we feel certain, whether it's with the facts or against the facts, whatever. But sometimes you don't feel certain. So what do you do when you don't feel certain? Well, uh, you don't, you know, flush everything down the toilet because now your life has gone, you know, down the pot. It just doesn't work that way because it is a normal experience to not feel. That's a, Nobody feels certain all the time. At least I've never met anybody like that about faith. You're dealing with something very big that you can't test for, there's no infrared lamp that picks up God or something like that. It just doesn't work that way it never has. and people have always people of faith have always struggled with the disjunction between faith in what is not seen and what is around them all the time and that's that's a very old struggle. People have had that since you know biblical times and maybe even
1: before. so how does the Bible interact with that because I'm thinking of a lot of verses that say things like, uh, so that you can know, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking maybe Romans in chapter 12, and maybe even a little bit in John's Gospel, where it's sort of um, talking about things that we can know. Mm-hmm. So how does that interact with what you're saying? What, what are the biblical writers trying to say about knowing as it relates to this faith? Well, I don't think that
0: knowing is an analytical concept the way we think of the word knowing. I think it is an experiential knowing. It's exactly the kind of knowing we need to try to seek, which is contrary to how many of us are taught about the faith, that subjective experience is not something to really connect to. That's That can be deceptive, but what is objective is the objective word of God. You exegete it, you understand it, you interpret it, and now you have certainty. I don't think that's what the biblical writers are talking about. And even if they were, which I don't think they are, but then we have to sort of put them next to a bunch of other biblical writers who would say, yeah, I don't see it anymore. This whole God thing doesn't make sense to me for a variety of reasons. And, of course, you have the go-to places like the Lament Psalms are huge for that, the Book of Ecclesiastes, the Book of Job. This, You know, we had Walter Burgman on a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago now. And he's got this beautiful concept, which I think we even mentioned, uh, Jared, in the podcast, of a counter-testimony. You've got the, ca- the main testimony. Okay, this is what God says. If you do it, you'll be blessed. If you don't do it, you'll be punished. This is how things work. It's going to work out. Okay, be obedient. And isn't, God, isn't it a great being an Israelite? But then you have the counter-testimony where there are biblical writers who say, yeah, I don't see it. It doesn't work that way within the Psalms or other books. And to have those books be part of the biblical tradition I think it's just an amazingly wonderful and comforting thing. People made decisions at some point after the return from exile, what books to keep and what books not to keep, especially which psalms to keep. There weren't just magically 150 psalms written. They made editorial decisions, which ones do we hold on to, and these psalms of doubt and of struggle, of of, um, figuring out why God is absent when God isn't supposed to be ever absent, those are things that describe the normal experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that, that witness cannot be discounted.
1: So you're saying the Bible has doubt built into it.
0: It has we, doubt if built into it. We're honest with the text. Right.
1: There are writers that are doubting God's faithfulness, God's right. being present to them. God's trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. Right. In the Bible itself. And what is that right. what does that mean? I mean, as readers, for instance, I grew up, reading those texts and I wouldn't have been given the tools to read it and say, Oh, I guess that means I can also have these questions. Usually they were interpreted for me and I could, they were tidy and you know, Oh, they weren't really having those questions. You know, they were, or those are bad examples of what not to do. Exactly. Those are
0: negative examples of faith. So
1: how do you, how did you come to a place where you could interpret it differently where it was now? Oh man, Seeing the writer of Ecclesiastes wrestle with these invites me Mm -hmm. into that place where I can wrestle with it too, and it's okay. Well,
0: a part for me is something like the book of Ecclesiastes, which I I have a hard time thinking, here's 12 chapters of a negative example of how to believe Right, just like okay,
1: you know, like the last
0: verse is like, oh, forget everything yeah, I just exactly. said. Exactly, <laughs> which actually <laughs> the end of the book doesn't say. You know that that's that's the irony of it is to say forget what he said. It says it means it says keep going anyway,
1: mm-hmm.
0: acknowledging the reality of these deep. I mean, the, the most deeply depressing book of the Old Testament of the Bible, probably for me, is Ecclesiastes because this guy basically says life is not meaningless, but it's absurd. This this thing that we do down here doesn't make any sense. It's like a, it's like an existential crisis, and he blames God. It's not you can't get out of that very easily, right? And this is what he does for eleven plus chapters, and it's to me it's just this this wonderfully threatening book to unsettle our theologies that within the Bible you have permission given that if you find yourself in a similar place. Uh, you've got a friend here in this guy, Kohelet, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, he's so distraught at how, you know, God has set up the universe in such a way that is absurd. Why? Because no matter what you do, you're still going to die. That, that's it. I mean, this is death. This is the fear many people have now too, right? And you say, "Oh well, yeah, but when you die, you go to heaven. He actually deals with that. He says, who knows whether the spirit of the animal goes down and the soul of man goes up. We actually don't know that his epistemology, his way of knowing reality is very much evidential. Like he said, we actually don't know any of that. So don't start with that stuff, right? What we do know is that when we die, we're going to be quickly forgotten. How do you know that? We ask him. He says, well, you've forgotten all the people who have died before you. What makes you think you're going to be any different? So, And that's like the first 11 verses of the book. It's like, And it goes downhill from there. And it's just an amazingly—I uh, just—I I love the book because what a religion this is, where, where you can acknowledge that as part of the tradition that you don't have to be a tidy and dressed-up Christian before God, and you shouldn't have to be before other people. And that's why having this stuff in the Bible is just—it's amazing. It's wonderful.
1: Yeah, when I was a when I was a pastor, I think in my darkest days of doubt. Uh, really not feeling feeling quite alone in that actually I had the the privilege or uh, you know as a pastor you can kind of choose what texts you want to preach from and so we went through my congregation went we went through the entire book of Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. so I I, I kind <laughs> of forced them into this crisis along with me and it was such a meaningful time because we were creating a space and all these aha moments uh, where the questions could come and week after week we were Dealing with this and everyone was amazed that this was in the biblical text right. that the Bible is inviting it that the person who wrote, you know, we have 66 books mm-hmm. and somehow one of them is like the most depressing text right. um, a, a, about these crises of faith. Right. So, well, you know, I want to go back and just be a little more personal with you. You know, you wrote this book, The Sin of Certainty. You have some personal stories in there. What you know, why write this book? you know, what, what in your life is compelling to you? Why do you relate so much to this idea of doubt and why is Ecclesiastes so compelling for you personally? Uh,
0: I guess it's because of a series of life experiences that brought me to a place to see how ways I had been thinking about the reality of God. It didn't explain anything anymore. Right. It's, in other words, I, I think you know, and it's my own fault, nobody else's, but having the right theology guarantees God's presence in some sense. And
1: wait, say more about that. Yeah, mean, I mean,
0: being like making sure you're orthodox or having the right answers to difficult questions, and therefore not doubting—that's that—is the sign of being quote a strong Christian. And life happens. You know, and and some of the stuff I do talk about in the book, I, 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 at some length, I talk uh, about my one of my daughters who had some difficulties, and you know, she's uh, you know very generously allowed me to sort of tell a little bit of her story in the book, but mainly my reaction to it. But uh, you know, when when one of your children struggles, or more than one struggles, it's like. Everything's off the table, you know, and you just don't know what to do. And um, plus, I'm a fixer, so I'm trying to fix things and because I want to control it because I'm a guy and I'm German and all that kind of stuff. And, and it just basically, I was learning lessons about how you have to actually let go of this need to control yourself and to control others and to control God. Because you just can't, it, life just doesn't work that way. And seeing the Bible sort of reflect that as well, to me, was very comforting. Uh, Hearing other people's stories where they've learned to let go of the need to know what's next, right? A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary long after you graduate, that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last night.
0: And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point.
1: It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process.
0: This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code normal people at checkout. BassGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. One of our guests here, Kent Sparks, who will be on very soon, a friend of mine, one of my colleagues at Eastern, we were talking about this years and years ago, about why is it that people have such a vested interest in having the sense of certainty about their faith? And I said something like, well, if they don't have a sense of certainty, it sort of disrupts how they look at the world and it, it disrupts their narratives about reality. And he said something, no, it's. I think it's more than that. I think, actually, I think it's more specific than that. He said, it's a fear of not knowing what happens to you after you die. And I said, I, that sounds too specific to me, but as I've thought about it over the years. I, said, I think that's exactly right. You know, we have the sense of certainty because now we have the we know we're right about ultimate reality and the big question that's driven probably every civilization that's ever existed, <laughs> what do you do about dying? Right? Mm. And so I get that. But the fact of the matter is we don't have that option of knowing things in the way we like to know them. Richard Rohr says, I mean, I read someplace, I forget where. He's only written a couple books. I should know where these are. But anyway, uh, you know, life is a series of learning to let go. Because when the big letting go happens, you're ready for it. And I'm saying, what a beautiful way of thinking about life. Like letting go of controlling others, letting go of the need to know, letting go of fear, Mm -hmm. right? Because I was very afraid because I didn't know what was going on with my daughter. I had a lot of difficulties at work. Both things were sort of falling apart at the same time. I didn't know what was going to happen. That was very fear-inducing. And I had to make decisions, you know, and long story short, a lot of people were, you know, very helpful to me in, in sort of journeying through this. But it says Pete, you have to decide every day: do you want to trust or do you want to be afraid? And that's like a rewiring thing almost. That's like that's like taking some mega dose of something, you know, to uh, to, to think differently. So um, yeah, it's 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 a tough road to hoe road to hoe, And the the fact that the Bible itself in significant places models that journey, not just Ecclesiastes, but other places too, is is something that I, I just, I can't imagine people not running to those books when they feel that way.
1: Yeah, and, and when they, you know, you said the, the choice between fear and trust. And I think it, to back up, though, before you get to that choice, there is a moment of realization that you don't know and that you're not in control. Right. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, they turn to, I mean, in our tradition growing up, where having all the answers kept you from feeling like you didn't know, right. and that you weren't in control, it was sort of staving off this crisis mm-hmm. that you say life happens, and it usually right. comes with great force into your life, mm-hmm. and then you're sort of knocked to your knees, and you come to this realization that, you don't really know, right. that you're not really certain. And then, then you get to that moment of having to choose between fear and trust. I guess my question to you is, is what are ways that you found when, in, your, in your classes or in other ways, does it have to be that we have to have this sort of existential crisis moment where something gets ripped out from under us before we're given that choice? Like how do you help people? Understand that we don't know like there may be people listening and they say, oh, no, I do know like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm fairly certain because the Bible says it. Well, I mean,
0: I'm I'm not Mm -hmm. here to convince them otherwise in the Mm -hmm. same way that I might not have been open to being convinced. Right. right? I I do think that it comes from some suffering, some pain. I don't Mm -hmm. think I, I will say I don't think spiritual growth happens. Apart from some type of suffering and pain, which can take a thousand different faces, it, it's not just one way of suffering or being in pain. It can be a thousand different ways. And for people like me, who is or wired to have control, right, which is a fear mechanism, which is inbred, it's in my blood. Trust me on that one. Um, it, my my struggling and pain will take on a different look than somebody else's who may be. Is just more chill, you know. They just don't have some of those same issues, right? But they they'll have something to struggle with and 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 feel pain about as well. But without that, there's no need to move. There's no need to grow. And that's what you know. When I say the title of the book is "The Sin of Certainty," I don't mean feeling certain is sinful. I mean when you don't feel certain anymore, what's quote sinful? What is selling God short is saying. Okay, I'm broken. I need to get back to the way I was, and then I'll be okay again. Rather than thinking of this as sort of an invitation through pain to come out the other side and say, okay, what does my life look like now? What will I believe? I don't know, actually, and neither do you. But that's part of this thing that's called faith that we have to, we don't know. Are we going to act anyway? Are we going to keep moving forward? Like in the book of Ecclesiastes, keep moving anyway. Don't stop just because nothing makes sense to you.
1: So then, you know, you've mentioned a few times this word trust. So I want to explore that a little bit because I think that's important. Like it's a personal word. Like I think a lot of times we think of faith as information. So knowing Mm -hmm. information and then believing certain information. But trusting sort of takes us a step further and invites us into kind of this relationship where we don't know, like, basically, I think trust is not knowing. Um, we can't have faith if we know. Mm-hmm. If we know something, we don't we don't trust anything. I sort of, I know it. Like I don't really trust mm-hmm. that two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident of that. I'm pretty assured of that. So, you know, the Bible is just filled with this language of trusting the mm-hmm. Lord. So as you've walked through this topic of doubt, how has trust, that idea, evolved for you? So what are new ways that that's come to mean different things yeah. for you?
0: I mean, I've, I've been at the place where I prefer using a word like trust rather than faith. Not that I think faith is a bad idea. It just it doesn't sort of capture where I am at the moment. Trusting is a personal word. You know, faith is, it, it tends to be more of an intellectual content right. word, like the word belief, right? I mean, like what do you believe? It's a what word. I believe that God exists. It's a what word. It's a that word. Trust is a very personal, it's a who word and it's an all in word. It doesn't give you any, there's no like compartment of your life that is, uh, that can be detached from it. And, you know, I, I love telling this story and asking people when I talk about this, have you ever taken a trust fall? And, you know, a few people raise their hands and I said, well, there's a reason they don't call it a belief fall. Because it's not about, I believe if I fold my arms in front of me and fall backwards, I believe someone will catch me. And you're, you're probably, you're, you can almost be certain of that belief. Because they're not going to let your head hunt on the floor. They don't want a lawsuit. They're probably pretty nice people. You know, you're at a convention. It's an icebreaker game. You know, so They're not going to let you drop. I mean, let's think about this. But the one time I've done it, when you're then told to fold your arms in front of your chest, you can't brace yourself when you fall backwards. And you actually have to trust somebody. That's even though I know he's not going to drop me, it's a frightening proposition because you're actually letting go of that control. So, and trusting God, you know, like Proverbs says, trust the Lord with all of your heart, which means with your whole being, which just means don't lean on your own understanding, don't lean on your own insight, <clears throat> lean on God, not your own insight. I mean, that's 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 a an existentially all in kind of existence. It's not something that is fundamentally an intellectual process which is the way many seminaries operate and and not all and it's sort of an occupational hazard because you have to teach content but God becomes an object of study right Uh, not long ago I was with um, Travis Reed the work of the people we were recording some videos and Travis is a wonderful guy and the first question he asked me on uh, on, on the video that he was recording was, "What is God to you?" And it stopped me for a second, and I remember thinking to myself, "I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question. What is God? Got it. We can talk about that all day, but what is God to you? That's that's when it gets personal. And and many of us are not really sort of schooled, and you know, and remembering that God is not an object of study and not something we can be intellectually certain about."
1: So how do you balance that with? I mean, you've made a career, right? Your job is to sort of know these things, right? These facts, the the Hebrew language, Greek for the New Testament, and all of these. So how do we balance that? You know, thirst for knowledge, and not let it be a substitute for trust. Right. So that's the trick. Yeah. I, I mean, did you did you go to seminary, and was all that was some of that trying to escape these doubts? I mean. Were you, what was your motivation? Yeah, it wasn't to this?
0: escape. I wasn't at that point. It was more, I was so excited about learning. That's why I went to seminary. I just wanted to know everything, you know, and, and not, not in, a, in, a, in, a, in a bad sense. I just was excited about learning about my faith. And I sort of had this uh, moments where th- this desire to know more what I actually say I believe. And I think that's a very good thing. But you can get fooled by that, too, thinking that you have now mastered the topic. Mm-hmm. They do call it a master of divinity, after all. Right. Yeah,
1: it's a little misleading. It's a little either. worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick. Yeah, I've you mastered it, divinity. You fail. I know. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they take it back. You <laughs> are no master. Did you learn nothing?
0: <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah, well, I found that out 20 years later, <laughs> that I probably didn't know anything in that sense, but...
1: Right. So what advice would you have for, for that? Because I think there is, right, knowledge is power. And so when we're feeling out of control and we're feeling uncertain, you know, for me, my instinct is to go study it, research right. it, try to know it, control it. Right. So how do we avoid that trap, you know, while also the good learning, the, the right. love of learning for learning's sake and to know, you know, how do we know God? Well, perhaps through the Bible. So right. Right. we want to do that right. as well. What have you found any tricks for that? No,
0: not a single trick, other than be aware of that tendency and keep talking to yourself, you know, when you and be honest with yourself when you see that happening. And being aware of yourself is and being aware of what makes you tick and why you're doing things is not something that. I think is always valued as much as it should be. I mean, John Calvin said knowledge of self and knowledge of God are two sides of the same coin. And I, I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in that. That you sort of like, you you have to know yourself, I mean, really know yourself and why you're doing what you're doing. And you can sort of begin catching yourself when you say, I'm I'm losing sight of what's really important here, which is namely God, and I'm replacing it with mastering a topic. Mm-hmm. And I need to sort of pull back and Take stock and see what's good about this, see what's not so good about this. Hopefully do that in community with people who you can actually be honest with, too, who are going to help you know yourself better than you do. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's not a trick. That's a process. That's a, that's a commitment. And it's not easy. I mean, you know, there, but there's no pamphlet that shows you how to do that.
1: Yeah, one, one thing that I often think of is when people, um, and this used to be the case for me, but whenever I felt threatened or would get defensive or upset right. at other people's questions, right, then I would kind of know there's something going on in right. me. Right. And, you know, having a lot of conversations with right. people where that was the case. And, and you I, were aware enough to know that. That's just saying right. you
0: have to be aware enough of yourself to know that's probably what's happening. And that's something that has to be learned.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you, know, you for, walk, yeah, walking people through that process. Right.
0: right. Yeah. And you need to be, I think people, you need to be shown that by other people. Which is where, you know, that, that trade-off between knowledge and wisdom comes in, because wisdom is actually much more important. It's lived experience that, you know, isn't really something that's the subject of an academic test or a dissertation. It's just how to navigate life in a good way. And it takes people who have been through things. And sometimes, you know, the, the motive for getting out of the knowledge rut is sometimes just getting sick and tired <laughs> Of this you just get you know controlling and mastering things is very tiring, especially if, if it's God that you thinks you're mastering. it's exhausting. It's like God's sort of big. you know and and but you do get to a point it's sort of like an alcoholic or an addict. It's like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. There has to be that this cannot be what this is all about.
1: Yeah. and
0: it's nice to have people to run to to talk to then when that happens.
1: It reminds me of, you know, the story of Jacob and wrestling with God Mm -hmm. and that limp. Like you keep talking about this language of getting to this end point, this crisis point. Mm -hmm. It always reminds me of that, you know, a lot of Christianity or a lot of um, Christian experience begins when you get the limp. Right. Uh, And and you kind of have this Mm -hmm. memory and this experience of the struggle Mm -hmm. and the pain and the suffering. And it sort of knocks you down a peg. Right. Where that... All that head knowledge, all the memory verses you learned mm-hmm. as a kid, and you—you know—you're the fastest one of those sword drills we talked about with right. Rachel, and we mm-hmm. were champions of that. That all that sort of fades in the background and doesn't seem to matter right. nearly as much as this trust, mm-hmm. this wisdom of lived experience, right. and leaning on your faith community. Right. Um, so,
0: and born out of, like you said, the the struggle, and it's should not escape our notice that the name of the nation in the old testament is israel which you know probably this is what they call a folk i have to blow you people away here but this is sort of a folk etymology it might not actually mean this in hebrew originally but it's understood by the biblical writers israel to mean struggles with god Mm -hmm. or, or striven or striving with god that's that sums up israel's entire history from the very beginning and we're all sort of striving with God in some sense, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, none of us is getting it right. We're all in different periods of feeling good and feeling certain about it and not feeling certain about it. And I think the biggest sin of certainty at all, is, of all, is when people are told by religious leaders that you cannot have a shred of doubt in your life, and if you do, you're sinning and you need to repent of it. No, the sin is being told by people that they're less than. Because they're simply honest and, and living with their questions that they honestly have, and they're not afraid to voice them. Now, you can be an honest agnostic, and I think be better off in God's mind, if I may put it that way, than somebody who plays the religion game, who doesn't have any problems, who's always playing make believe. And you know, inauthenticity is, is is not a good way to live your life. And I can't imagine God wants that. Play the game. Stay on the beach blanket. Don't cause trouble. Okay, good boys and girls. Now you all get to go to heaven after you die. I hope that's not what this is about. And I'm absolutely convinced it's not what it's about. And uh, the Bible tells me that. (laughs) Watching these biblical characters go back and forth and struggling. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Yeah, that, you know, when I think of the biblical characters, I think of sort of this rich, uh, like a marriage relationship. And we were often talking about that. Like, you know, uh, I remember early on in my marriage, I had, I think it was either the person who married us or someone else, give us this advice and talk about, um, you know, there are no perfect marriages. So if you see, if, if you don't ever fight, that's actually probably not a good sign. Mm-hmm. So seeing that as part of a healthy relationship right. where you're struggling and you see that in the old Testament right. and you see that again and again, where it's in the struggle and in, especially the Jewish writers we mm-hmm. see as we'll, you know, we'll talk to some Jewish scholars later on right. in the podcast where they say, no, the whole point of relationship is this striving together. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's as a team and sometimes if we're butting heads, mm-hmm. but all of that is encapsulated by relationship. Right. That commitment to each other.
0: Right. Which is still founded in a deep trust, like right. a child to a parent, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You, 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 there may be conflict, but there's still a deep trust. Yeah. And,
1: and it's also heartbreaking to see faith communities that don't mirror that. Right. If God is okay with our questions mm-hmm. and we can come to God with those questions and God seems to be okay with it and we strive and we fight and we disagree right. and we get angry and then we come around, and we, mm-hmm. but it's all in this trust. Then to have a faith community, like you said, where it's the pastor says, no, it has to be this way right. and the community exiles you. For right. bringing those doubts, it's mm-hmm. a real shame. I, I think that's very frustrating to see for me.
0: I think it's sub-Christian, It's it's and it's sub-biblical. I, I won't say un-Christian or un-biblical, but it's, I don't think it's the way it should be. When one of my daughters was 16, she did not worship the ground that I walked on. I don't know why, because I was pretty much the perfect father.
1: Clearly. I, I think my okay.
0: kids... Don't listen to the podcast anyway. That's fine.
1: Hi, guys.
0: Go to bed. No wait. You're 23, 26, and 29. You don't do that. Okay. Anyway, uh, but when one of my daughters was 16, she just like she hated my guts, and like she didn't friend me on Facebook. Oh! Can you imagine that? That's
1: a slap in the face.
0: And then she did friend me, and then she unfriended me oh, for no reason. You. No reason. None because what did I do, right? So, and it was this sort of passive-aggressive not talking to each other. One day I asked her, I said, well, you know, what's going on? And she just stopped and looked at me. She goes, I don't like you, and walked away. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm a failure.
1: <laughs> why was I
0: ever born? That kind of thing. But, anyway, I, I talked to a, a friend of mine who had been through this and was a bit older than I was, uh, and he said, no, that's great parenting. I said, why? What are you talking about? Great parenting? My daughter hates me. He goes, she trusts you enough to tell you honestly what she thinks without feeling that you're going to, like, reject her or throw her out of the house for saying it. So somewhere there's been a culture of honesty here that intentionally, unintentionally has been built up, and she felt like she could actually say that. So good job. You know? mm. so I, and I felt like, okay, that's interesting, but I, that's so easy for me to connect to the Bible itself, where you have the biblical writers. You know, Psalm 89 is one of my favorite examples. Basically calls God a liar. Basically, that's what he does. And, you know, he, he, he it's, a, it's a long psalm, but it basically goes like this Oh, Lord, you're just the best. You're, nobody compares with you. You're, first of all, you're the almighty creator. No one else did that. And you know what else? You are so steadfast and faithful. Man, when you make a promise, you keep it. That you're, and, first of all, you're almighty, so you can do anything. And you're so trustworthy. You've been so trustworthy to our ancestors, blah, blah, blah. And, as I say, and you know what? There's this great promise you made to us that a son of David would never see sitting on the throne of Israel. That's like maybe the most awesome thing you've ever done except for creating the universe. So have we mentioned that you're awesome and great and, and you're trustworthy and you're the almighty creator? Yeah. Anyway, can we talk about the exile here for a minute? Because <laughs> functionally, there is no one sitting on the throne of David and there wouldn't be. Well, in in, in in a sense, forever it was over. Uh, the last king of the south, the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, is blinded and carried to Babylon, but not before his sons sons are killed in front of him. Thus, in effect, ending the Davidic line. And so they have a you know an axe to grind with God, like what about the promise? And you said you someone would be sitting on the throne of David forever. And then at the end of the psalm, he asks, will you forget us forever? See, if your promise doesn't last forever, maybe your absence will. It's one of the more sarcastic sort of mm-hmm. things in the Bible, but it's there and they left it. And I think that's, okay, so you're telling us we should do that? No, I'm not saying you should do that. But if you're ever in a place where you feel like you have to sort of debate God, you've got some good precedent there. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is why I think the Old Testament remains such an important thing for Christians to read for that very reason. You see, you don't see this in the New Testament. Why? Because it's written over a very short period of time with a triumphal tone where God's Messiah has shown up, raised from the dead, hold on a little while longer, things will be fine, everything will be set right. Uh, Don't get married, don't occupy your things, just stay the course, it's going to happen very quickly. Uh, And there's no room there for, hey, you're struggling with your faith, God's been absent in your life, but in the Old Testament, which takes hundreds of years, there's plenty of time for things to go wrong. And I think we today have much more in common, in some respects, with a psalm writer or with Job or with Ecclesiastes than we even do with Paul, for whom... I struggle now, I'm in prison, things are difficult, I may die, but I know this is going to come to an end very, very soon. And, and, and you know, and that didn't happen. And we have a lot longer spans of time, so we connect, I think, with the Old Testament differently. And that's one reason not to forget that witness of the Old Testament as being very, very intricately related to the experiences that most Christians have. It's a great place to go.
1: Good. Well, before we wrap up, I have one final question for you, Pete. Yeah. And that's, you know, what word of advice or what kind of final thoughts would you give to someone who's kind of in the throes of this, who's asking a lot of questions, maybe doesn't have a place to go with those questions, mm-hmm. af- afraid that they'll be, you know, uh, kicked out of their community or their family or, you know, their mm-hmm. friends won't talk to them anymore. What, in your experience, um, you know, what, what words would you would you offer?
0: Well, I'd remind them that this is a normal part of faith, even though you don't feel like it. And they might say, no, you don't understand. I'm really, really struggling. So I know exactly that. No, you don't understand. Like, everything's falling apart. I know. That is a normal part of the life of faith. It's not sort of struggling. <laughs> it's, not, it's sort of dark, but not really. Like, I have this flashlight, so I can sort of see things. You know, it's, So it's a normal part. You have comfort in the history of the church, and you have comfort in Scripture itself. God understands. Jesus himself struggled a couple of times with God on the cross and in the garden. You're, you're in good company. There is something that will bloom from this experience, however long it takes. With Mother Teresa, it took 40-something years. I don't wish that on anybody. But this is you're not abnormal. At least start there. And seek out somehow a community, even if it's online, but other people who get that. And who don't judge you or look down upon you or ostracize you or reject you for your honest path in life at this point. I mean, th- those are at least some very practical things maybe. I don't think it's a matter of read the Bible more and pray more. Mm-hmm. Those are exactly the things that are hard for you to do. Right. But some positive step in seeking out people who will just sit and listen without right. giving you bad advice. You know, and that's what people with wisdom who've experienced this themselves and they're out there. And that's why the more people talk about this, thank you, Internet, the more people articulate this, the more people realize, like, I thought I was crazy. I thought I was the only one who felt this way. Right. What's wrong with me? Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it's great where you are, but at least you know that it's not abnormal. It's, it's a part of the life of faith.
1: Well, thanks everyone for listening. Be sure to check out Pete's book, The Sin of Certainty. It recounts more of your journey of faith and doubt. Yep. And you can find me, Jared, online um, on Twitter at jbias, j b y a s.
0: And you can find me on Twitter too, and Facebook. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this online course that we mentioned before. Uh, it is a, a course that is uh, being offered through the Peace, the School of Peace Theology. And it's on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And actually, the, let me give you the title of the course. The Use of the Old Testament by the New Testament Writers, Hermeneutics and Theology and Context. Now, if you're turned off by the title, don't be. Uh, it requires no prior knowledge. It's just a level of interest that you might have. But let me tell you, this is a topic that got things going for me about 30 years ago or so when I started really delving deeply into You know, what is the Bible? What does it mean to read it well? How does it work? Nothing opened my imagination more than watching how the New Testament writers handle the Old Testament because it's not in ways that we would normally think is good reading of the Bible. They're very creative, they're very ancient, very Jewish. And uh, that's a course I'm just very excited about. It meets on Tuesdays. It begins May 9th. So that's coming up pretty soon. May 9th Uh, At 7 o'clock Eastern Time, and I know not everyone is Eastern Time, and that's okay. That's not my fault where you live, right? But it's not your fault either. We're going to make arrangements somehow to uh, make some of these things available in different time zones. And I know the people at the School of Peace Theology are talking about that. So hopefully that'll work out pretty soon. But it goes for six weeks, May 9th, June 13th, uh, live uh, talking for about 45 minutes. I'll deliver sort of a lecture presentation for 45 minutes. And then a 45-minute Q&R session, questions and responses, not necessarily firm answers. And the class is limited to 500 people. So I hope you can join us, and it's going to be loads of fun. I'm really, really looking forward to it.
1: So it's an online course. Where do people sign up?
0: Ah, on the Internet,
1: that's oh, you mean Bronx. specifically? It's a pretty big You mean specifically?
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> okay, the best place to go is directly to the website, theschoolofpeacetheology.com. And all the courses are there. I'm not the only one teaching a course, and you can find some others as well. But that's the place to go. Thanks thanks everybody for joining us please visit me on my website PeteNs.com also the thebiblefornormalpeople.com join our discussions there on topics like this one today on faith and doubt and you can also check out my book on the topic called The Sin of Certainty and please join us again next time when our guest is Mark Brettler. and our topic is on being a Jewish biblical scholar